So as you guys hopefully saw from that, you have three different perspectives, three different applications of things. They all have truths that are relevant, but they need to all work together in order to accomplish something. That was where AJ as the voice of reason came in. And it's the same thing with God's Word. There are three basic applications to, God, to the Word of God, and one on its own, independent of the others, isn't going to accomplish much. You need all three to work together in order to understand the Bible on a more deeper level. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Romans 15, if there is a verse that summarizes all three of these, it's this. Romans 15, 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. On your outline, these three applications work out this way. Historical, doctrinal, and devotional. Did you see it in that verse? For whatsoever things were written aforetime. What is that? History. We're written for our learning. That's the doctrinal application. That's what doctrine actually means. It's the teaching. What is the teaching that is going on here? They're written for our learning. That we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Patience, comfort, hope. These are all things that as you are walking in this world, but hopefully not of this world, you will find yourself needing on a daily basis because the world is going to be hammering and blasting you every second of the day. If it doesn't feel like the world is doing that to you, one of two things is happening. One, you need to be studying your Bible to see that clearly happening. And two, you're probably already knocked out on the ground from the world, which is why you won't see the world coming at you and pressing against you every single minute of the day because you probably are too much like and of the world. We need patience. We need comfort of the Scripture. We need hope. That's the devotional, practical application. You can check out your outline here. All of these verses kind of deal with this as well. Ecclesiastes 1.9, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. That's historical. The Bible says that everything in this book, He gave us history in advance. Look at John 5 on there. This is Christ himself speaking to the religious, pharisaical leaders of the day where he says, search the scriptures. In other words, study it out. Don't just read. Don't just do your devotions. Search it. Study it. Remember those guys in Acts 17, the Bereans? It says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And the Thessalonian church was a good church. He's like, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. You must take Bible reading to the next level at some point. Doesn't mean you nix Bible reading. Have studying added on to your daily devotions. Christ is telling them, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they, the Scriptures, are they which testify of me. How so? Verse 46, For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me. For he, Moses, wrote of me. We've covered that ad nauseum on Wednesday nights, talking about the Old Testament. The law and the prophets all speak of Christ. 
But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? This is the representative verse of the doctrinal application. Everything in the Scripture, going from Genesis 1 all the way down to Revelation 22, everything, everything, everything points towards Christ. Yes, even something like Abraham and Sarah. Abraham being barren, or Sarah being barren, Abraham being too old to, con to, uh, to father children. And everything else, all of these Old Testament stories, they are all pictures and typologies of Christ. That's the deeper doctrinal meaning. And lastly, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Read chapter 10 sometime. He's talking about those things which were written aforetime, the historical. And he says of those things that happened to Israel when they were in the, the, the wilderness. Now all these things happened unto them for end samples, and they are written of our admonition. See, everything that happened in the Old Testament... It can help you today, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So let's break this down a little bit even further. Historical application. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. If there are tough passages you are coming across, you implement the other... Four, or I'm sorry, the other three factors that we've looked at so far, and you add this one to it. And this passage here is kind of just, it's a little neat little thing. I love how God did this, how he put this in there. Verse 18, reader. AJ, 518. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth passed, or jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. One jot and one tittle. What the heck are either of those things? I'll show you. Now, some of you might not have this in your Bible. It's more so just because of how the publisher does things. But I would assume that by and large, most of you here, as I kind of just scan your Bibles, you should be able to see this. Turn over to Psalm 119. Real quick, what's the significance of Psalm 119? Longest. Longest chapter in the Bible, but even of greater significance than that, what else? Every single verse of this longest chapter in the Bible is about what? The Bible, the Word of God. Even more so, it's about one man's deep love and admonition, admiration rather, for the Word of God. Look at verse 73. Now, I don't know about you guys, but do you guys have a, a Bible where you have like these little like titles or headers on above each of the or each of the uh, stanzas, I guess you could say? Mm -hmm. If not, try looking on with uh, a neighbor of yours to kind of see it. Again, if not, don't worry about it. It's a more of a publisher thing. Psalm 119 is basically known as an acrostic psalm, which means that each uh, of these stanzas starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, at the very top of verse 73, you have something there that says Jod, for those of you who have these Bibles that show that. Do you see a little Hebrew marking that's right next to Jod? You know what that is? You want to take a guess? A Jod. Well, in Hebrew, yes, but translated over into Greek and then into English, as we just read in Matthew 5.18, it's a jot. Do you see that little mark there? 
That is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Does it say, do you see Jod? Yeah. Right next to it. It kind of looks like a period. Oh no, yours doesn't have it. Bummer. Yeah, Jake will show you. That's what's, that is a jot, is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Flip back over to verse 25. This one's fun. All right, you guys see up above 25 where it says, uh, I think it's pronounced Daleth, Daleth. You have something that kind of looks like a seven, right? Kind of like that. Do you guys look closer? Do you notice that this little thing right here where it kind of tails up a little bit? If not, put your Bible up to your eyes. Do you see it? I'm blind. This is the wrong prescription. Yes, I do see it. Do you guys know not what this, this whole letter is, but that little mark right there? That's a tittle. That is a tittle. That little just curve upwards, that's what that is. You know what that is? It's the smallest mark in the Hebrew alphabet. So you go to Matthew 5.18, you see that Christ is saying, hey, look, of everything that I talk about in this book, of everything that is written in here, I am going to fulfill everything down to the most minute detail of the smallest letter, even to the smallest marking. I am that detailed, I am that committed, and I, as Christ, am going to fulfill all that I said I was going to. We have a record for us up here. We're very unique in our time in history where we can actually stand here in 2022 and look back at history and see, yep, just about everything he said would happen has happened so far. There's only one thing left to, to go, and it's the rapture and everything that proceeds after that. But I think given his track record of accuracy, that's not going to be too hard for him to nail as well. So on your outline here, the historical application, the Bible is divinely inspired by God, written down by men, and 100% historically accurate in all its details. You guys got to think about that. People, places, time, events in the past, present, and future. Now, let me ask you, do your teachers at school currently believe that? Do your friends at school currently believe that? Would you be able to convince them otherwise? God cannot lie, so there is no reason to ever doubt its historical accuracy. While many attempt to discredit the historical record of the Bible, especially miracles and fulfilled prophecy, the Bible has never been proven to be historically inaccurate. Archaeological evidence is continually found in support of the record of the Bible. One day I, I plan on doing a class where we actually kind of look at these evidences in greater detail. You guys realize that in the Red Sea, Archaeologists have discovered just mere hundreds of years ago chariot wheels belonging to Egypt on the ocean floor from when the Red Sea came crashing down just a couple hundred years ago. If that, they've discovered this. And that was 3,000 years ago? 3,500 years ago? See, science is always catching up to the Bible. History is always catching up to the Bible. You see, this book keeps putting God into history. Uh, people who say that this is a religious book, they're wrong. 
The Bible is first and foremost a history book. And its history is accurate. You know the reason why man keeps trying to discredit this as a religious book? Because they keep trying to get God out of history. Because if this is actually a history book, man has to come up with an answer. Did Jesus Christ rise again from the grave or did he not? But see, if you discredit this as merely a religious book, it's very, very easy for you to just numb yourself to that reality. Oh, yeah, it's a religious book. That means that anyone can just believe what they want. It's okay for you to believe that. I believe something different. Let's just agree to have our beliefs separately. That's what's great about this country. And then they can just go about their merry way, sinning and enjoying their sin. It's the same thing with evolution. Mankind likes the idea of believing that we all came from nothing, that we all have, don't have a creator, that we just evolved. Because look how great we are progressing. Look how great we are advancing. Look how far we have come and how things are so much better medically and economically. All of this is going so, so great. And hey, since I wasn't created by this almighty, powerful being, I don't have to answer to this almighty, powerful being when I die. So I can just keep sinning and going about my merry way because I don't have any accountability. But see, if you put God and you put this book as a history book, you have to do something with the resurrection. Jesus Christ either rose again from the dead or He did not. If He did, uh-oh, you have to answer. Well, how do we know that He did? Plethora of evidences of it. Number one, go to his tomb today. Oh, well, the disciples took his body. Overpowering two Roman centurions who were brutal tacticians of their day from Jewish fishermen. Jewish fishermen? No. No. See, this is why we need to hammer this point more often. Ask your friends this tomorrow. Hey, did Jesus Christ rise again from the grave or did he not? See what their answer is. But be prepared to defend your stance. Because if he did, man, you better get saved. Next, the doctrinal application. 1 Corinthians 10, you can check that out later. Again, we already talked about that. Numbers 21, oh, that's a good one. Numbers 21, we don't have time to look at it today, but Numbers 21 is where uh, all these brazen serpents are coming down. There's literally these fiery serpents are being rained down from heaven. Oh, did Satan do that? Serpent, it must be. No. God did that as punishment for Israel whining and complaining and throwing a hissy fit. God sent them down here to bite and to kill his own people. Yes, God does take out Christians who are constantly living in disobedience and sin. He did it to Israel. Why wouldn't he do it with us? And so Moses comes before God and says, God, please... These people are crying out for help. God says, all right, take one of those serpents and you put it on a pole. A serpent, a picture of sin, a picture of death. Erect a pole and then take a serpent and then put it on the pole. So that all of them who look to this serpent on a pole, this sin on a pole, all who look towards it will live. And you think it's any coincidence that while Nicodemus is in the garden talking to Christ in John chapter 3, Jesus says to him that just as Moses lifted up 
in the, in the wilderness, so shall the Son of God be lifted up. The doctrinal application of that. Even in the book of Numbers, there is this picture of Christ. He who knew no sin became that serpent. Holiness and righteousness embodied took on your sin and became defiled as a serpent in your stead. The doctrinal actual application, the doctrinal picture of Christ, all the way back in Numbers. So you see on the outline here, doctrine to fill in your blank, it simply means God's established truth. Knowledge of a system or set of beliefs given by God. Simply speaking, if you want to put this down, it means teaching. The doctrinal application simply means that God has tucked away bigger, deeper teachings and pictures of His grand doctrinal truths in Bible verses, passages, and stories. They are not always easy to catch, but they can be the most wonderful and interesting applications found. Many doctrinal applications are prophetic teachings of the coming of Christ, the Antichrist, the Tribulation period, the Millennium, etc. As I said, every book... The entire theme of the book, it is the day of the Lord. Especially when you get into the prophets. Every single prophet, the theme of that book is the day of the Lord. Christ returning and sitting down on the throne. And last, the devotional application. This is also known as the practical application. How does this apply to me? This is Caleb the Millennial. The, the conspiracy theorist is the doctrinal application. The future truth of what is coming. And of course, you had the old codger who was the historical application. This is why we, get, we do camp commitments for you guys. Yes, you got a lot of information about the Bible, historically speaking. Yes, you got some awesome teaching through 10 messages in a five-day period. Awesome. But at the end of the day, what can you do? How can you take the truths of this book and this old historical record and how can you apply it to your life right now? All three have to work together. And on that point too, you can't just be all devotional because then you're going to miss out on some doctrinal teaching and you're going to miss out on some prophecy. You're not going to be able to, how to answer. You're not going to know how to answer some of your friends when they ask questions at school, if they're even asking you questions at school. Maybe it's because they don't know you as an authority of the Bible, as someone who studies and knows his Bible. So maybe they won't ask you questions. But you can't, you can't neglect doctrine and just be all devotional. Consequently, you can't just be all historical. Otherwise, you're just going to be a knowledge deadhead. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. How does this apply to you right now on your outline? The devotional application is the personal application that can be made from every scripture to our own lives. The entire Bible is our learning and for our personal application. Every book, chapter, and verse applies to my life right now in some way. Making a personal devotional application must be balanced with factor number two. It's the people factor. All Scripture is for us, but not all Scripture is directly to us, so we should always be careful to apply the Bible appropriately in our lives. All right, real quick, practical examples. I want you guys to circle 1 and 3. That'll be your homework. And I kept it simple. 
because one of which we just covered this past Wednesday night, so you should have some idea of it, and the other we've covered extensively during our Revelation class. But if you need help with it, again, phone a friend. It's all good. Look at number two, the book of Job. How does this break down? Now, some of you in here have gone through Job recently. Some of you maybe have read it in the last couple of years. Historically speaking, what's going on here? What's this book about, in other words? Job. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Wurschler, for that studious response. Just fist bump him. See me after class. What's the book of Job about? What's going on with this dude? He loses everything. Loses everything. And he's suffering for it. He's trying to figure out the reason why. You guys can write this stuff down. But what kickstarts the entire book off? Chapters 1 and 2 are very, very important. Because before this guy has everything taken away from him, there is an interesting meeting that takes place. And it's one of three places in all of the Bible where you actually hear Satan himself speaking. Satan doesn't show up that often in the Bible when you think about, oh, don't worry, he's on every page of your Bible. But when he actually shows up and starts talking, you want to pay very close attention to what he's getting at. Chapters 1 and 2, Satan and the sons of God, another, type, or another uh, phrase for angels, they go up into heaven. Wait a second, I thought Satan was in hell. Mm-mm. Wait, how did he have access to heaven? Does he still have access to heaven? Mm-hmm. Revelation 12.9 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And just as he was in Job 1 and 2, every single day he's going before our Father, and he's doing exactly what he did in chapters 1 and 2 of Job. I'm just going to and fro throughout the earth, Lord, looking at your sons, looking how well they did. You want to know what so-and-so said this week? You want to know what so-and-so did this week? You want to know what so-and-so did behind the back of their youth leaders and their pastors and their parents? I'll tell you what they did because I was there. And all of my many minions were there and saw the whole thing happen too. Maybe that happens. But you know, according to 1 John 2, 2, Jesus Christ, he's our advocate. You know what an advocate is? It's a defense attorney. Jesus Christ stands up and says, Objection! Uh, my servant is covered by my own blood. He's not guilty. You've got nothing against him. Don't even give Satan a reason to go to the throne for you. Don't even give him a reason to bring a railing accusation against you. Yeah, you're covered. But make it to whereas he's got nothing. He can't say anything. Or maybe, flip side of the coin, he hasn't gone to the throne to accuse you because you're not dangerous enough in hell for him to be concerned about you. There's an interesting story in the book of Acts where these guys are going out and they're witnessing, but they're kind of doing it in their own, the power of their own flesh and they're trying to do it to make a name for themselves. And they come against this demon-possessed guy in the New Testament, by the way, does demon possession still go on? Mm-hmm. They come against this demon-possessed guy, and he just whips their tail left and right. And he says this to them, uh, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you guys? 
These guys weren't dangerous enough to be known in hell. Be dangerous enough to be known in hell. Be dangerous enough with this book that your name is on Satan's lips. I gotta find a way to get them. I gotta find a way to take them down. They're doing too much damage to my kingdom of darkness. I have to find a way to stop them. That's what he did with Job. So I guess if you want to put down a historical, yeah, Job suffers tribulation, but it's caused by a contention between Satan and God. Does anybody need to go serve right now? All right, if so, go ahead and head on out. You guys can finish up with the podcast later. Get your notes from your friends. The doctrinal picture, though, the doctrinal application, because again, this is talking about Job, and Job is going through a time of tribulation. Does anybody know how long the book of Job actually lasts for? How the length of time? Seven days. The entire process of Job, he's in tribulation for seven days. He's in tribulation for seven days, and he has no idea that this pain and this turmoil he's in is brought upon from Satan himself, and it's revealed to him by God later on in the chap or later on in the book, by revealing that Satan is this beast, this seven-headed beast who comes out of the sea. Gee, in Revelation 13, we read about a beast that comes out of a sea having seven heads. And that's talking about the tribulation period. And during this time when Job is going through all this stuff, he is in the land of Uz. You know where the land of Uz is? It's in the land of Edom. You know where the land of Edom is? It's in a place called Petra. And Petra is this place where God supernaturally protects the Jews and preserves Israel for 42 months or the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. So doctrinally speaking, this is a prophetic picture of Israel suffering in the tribulation under the hand of the Antichrist. That's the doctrinal application. And do you think it's any coincidence that 42 months is three and a half years, and 42 just so happens to be the number of chapters in the book of Job? Hmm... So that's the historical, that's the doctrinal, devotionally. It's what you and I must do biblically to deal with spiritual warfare. How do we biblically deal with trials as they come into our lives? And honestly, how do we listen to the right voices? Where do we get biblical counseling from as opposed to people who say they're our friends, but really they don't have our best interest in mind? All right, lastly, turn over to Proverbs chapter 5. Sorry, go to chapter 6. We're going to do number 4. The strange woman of Proverbs. Follow along with me in verse 20. He says, My son, Solomon, the king, speaking to his son. The king of Israel is speaking to his sons. Keep thy father's commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually upon thine heart and tie them about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. What's the point though? Why? Why do I need to have the word so close to me? 
Verse 24. To keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread. Nothing. And the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Summary, you are playing with fire here. Man, oh, I wish I had time to read all of chapter 7. We'll just pick and choose a couple pieces here, but to get this down in your notes, historical. What's Solomon telling his son? He's giving him wisdom on what? What do we just read? What's, if you summarize it in one sentence, what's Solomon giving his son wisdom on? Specific. Get specific and detailed. Just like our uh, our camp commitments. Avoiding sketchy women. Thank you. Like it or not, there are certain women you better stay away from. And ladies, like it or not, there are certain guys you should stay away from. But specifically, he's highlighting guys because guys can be brought to as a piece of bread, as an ox to the slaughter, chapter 7 says. And man, if we just kept it there, oh, he's talking to his son Solomon. Well, no, because I am a son of the King of Israel. I am a son of Christ. And so what, man, this is wisdom that will help everyone to avoid bad relationships, physically and spiritually. That's the devotional application. This applies to us today. Look over at chapter 7. But it doesn't just stop there. He says in chapter 7, verse 7, and beheld among the simple ones. He's talking about a harlot's house. I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding. I'm getting to that. Sorry, I spoiled it too soon. Passing through the street near her corner, and he went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, when he thinks he can get away with it, when no one else is looking, but everyone's always looking, because there are unseen spiritual forces beholding all this junk all the time. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot. Guys and girls, mark it down. There is such a thing as an attire of a harlot. You may not be a harlot. You may not be looking at a girl that's a harlot. But there is such a thing as the attire of a harlot. And subtle of heart. Man. Look at verse 13. So she caught him and kissed him with an impudent face said unto him, I got news for you. She's not some 250-pound bulking power lifter when it says that she caught him. He could have gotten away. Ain't nobody gets caught who doesn't want to be caught in her web. And she kissed him. Oh, and look, she goes, I have peace offerings with me. Oh, this is peaceful. This day have I paid my vows. Verse 15, therefore came I forth to meet thee. Yes, you, only you. I only have eyes for you, diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. Jump down to verse 21. With her much 
fair speech, she caused him to yield. Know what another word for yield is? Submit. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. Yeah, he made his choice. But man, I'm telling you what, you let the hooks get in, you let the needle get in, you let the heroin get into your system of the lust, and even in the context of this, the emotional attachment. There are certain words, there's a certain look a girl can give you, there are certain words she can say that, man, it just, it's like heroin injected into your system and you need another fix. I want more of that flattering those flattering lips. I want more of those flattering words to feed my ego and my pride. He goeth after her straightway. Look at verse 22. As an ox goeth to the slaughter and knoweth not, the end of verse 23, it is for his life. Man. Definitely devotional for sure. Real quick, look at chapter 5 and we'll conclude here. Because you can't just end with the devotional. Again, all three parties need to work together to get the full picture. Again, chapter 5 talking about the strange woman. Look at verse 3. The lips of a strange woman drop as honeycomb, and her mouth is sweeter than oil. Verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. Wait, I thought we are talking about a woman here. She has steps? Jump down to verse 8. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house. This woman has steps that lead to a door of her house. Hmm. Jump down to verse 14. I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly. Now, wait a second here. This is talking about a little bit more than just a whorish woman. This is a little bit more than just a street corner, a street worker. She has steps that lead to a door of her house where it is called a congregation and an assembly. And then you think about the other strange women in the Bible, and we'll talk about this as we go on further in the study of how to study the Bible. Man, you know who's a personification of a strange woman in the Bible? Jezebel. And she caused the sons of God to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed unto Baal, the false god, in a religious system, in a religious context. And what's funny about Jezebel is that her name carries over into Revelation chapter 2, which is on your homework for this week, by the way, and talking about a church called Jezebel, a congregation, an assembly. And Jezebel in this church, she is a harlot, and this church becomes a harlot, and it goes all the way up to Revelation 17, the mother of harlots. Doctrinally speaking, when you see anything talking about a strange woman, the big prophetic picture is talking about the characteristics of all false religion, all false churches. And especially that church in Revelation 17 that will be persecuting Israel in the tribulation period. That's the doctrinal prophetic application. But man, does that not apply to my life today? Real quick, we're talking about historical doctrine devotional. We're ending here. 
Those of you who are VBS teachers this past week, this past year, does that remind you of anything else? Book, look, took. Here's what the book is saying. Here's the deeper teaching behind it. Boys and girls, here's how it applies to you. Let's pray. Thank you.